Lord, we pray that we would be a glory and an honor to you as we study together your word and what you have said. We love you and we trust you in all things. Amen. Now, um, for those of you who were here last week, we were blessed to have Weston share from Philippians chapter 2. And if you have not, if you did not hear it or if you missed it last week, please go check it out online on our podcast. Listen to it. It will certainly uh, encourage you. And we were grateful uh, for his um, edification, for the edification of the word and the and the preaching last week. This week we're diving right back into Second Thessalonians. And we're diving into the middle of a difficult text, a three-part, a third part to a, what has been three parts, might be four parts, um, but a three-part look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, uh, which are fun and difficult, and we are diving into a difficult portion of chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So I just want to, uh, first we're going to read this, and then I'm going to spend a, a minute reminding you of where we are. And then we'll dive into this text again. Uh, So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the being being gathered together with Him or to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. (coughs) So that... He takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deceptions for those who are are perishing because they refuse to love the truth And so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. May God add his blessing to the heeding to the reading, the hearing of his word. Now, amidst all the false teachings and false false spirits and false testimonies and even false letters, Paul writes to the second Thessalonians warning them about these things, saying, look, there are people who are coming who are sharing false things. They're doing false things. They're preaching false things. They are coming into your midst and spreading lies. And so he 
He warns them here at the beginning of this passage amidst all of these things. Don't go after them. Don't listen to them. Don't be alarmed. And he tells them two things. Don't be alarmed or shaken. And that there will be a rebellion and there will be the lawless one. So the rebellion and the lawless one have to come first before Jesus comes back. So he he states this very plain thing. He says, don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. Now, I just want you to realize this isn't far from us. Uh, Several months ago, I might have thought that this was far from us. That this concept, that this letter, uh, 2 Thessalonians, might have been, I might have told you, well, you know, they're really in a different place than we are. Not anymore. Not anymore. In the last year and a half, my mind has changed. As you know, we pick books here to study through about eight months in advance. Uh, I start outlining sermons about eight months in advance. So this, this has been heavy on uh, my mind for months. And as I've, as I've studied this, I've realized more and more, no, God knows what he's doing when he guides our church to pick books. Often we'll pick a book and I'll run it by Andrew and we'll say, you know, is this okay? And Andrew will go, yeah, sure. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, there's only been one or, once or twice when he's been like, no, we should do this one. Um, but that happens just so you're aware that does happen and I lose often. So we will, uh, we will pick a book and we pick this one. And I, I mentioned it to him and I was like, I don't know how we're going to study it. And he was like, oh, okay. And so we, we started it, but man. With all the YouTube prophets and TikTok prophets that we have nowadays, all the weird stuff you get on online that happens immediately, people sending, like posting garbage, posting stuff online that sounds prophetic, that if you do five minutes of research, you realize is not at all, uh, is fear mongering and manipulation. Um, all that stuff, all these false prophets who will try to scare you into a point of view or try to drum up anxiety that we see all over the place. I, I was unaware of most of it until the last two years. Um, and this just kind of crept up on us. That's how the Thessalonians feel. That's what's, kind of, that's what's happened. They've, Paul has, was there for three weeks. He taught for three weeks and then had to run. He sent Timothy back. He sent Timothy back probably with the first letter. And Timothy spent some time there teaching and engaging them. Uh, The youngest of the group that was with Paul gets sent back. Just to encourage some of you younger people, the the youngest gets sent back to lead the church in Thessalonica. And he is entrusted with the word of God. And he goes in and he starts to teach and preach. And what he encounters is that there's false things coming even to the point of false letters where someone has written a letter claiming to be Paul and has sent it to him. Now, they're in the midst of that and he says, do not be alarmed or shaken. The rebellion and the lawless one, these specific things will come. The lawless one will be revealed in God's timing. We see that there, right? We see that in this text. The lawless one is going to come. He's going to be revealed in God's timing. Jesus is going to destroy him. And Jesus is going to save his people by truth. Truth is going to reign in the hearts of Jesus's people. And so how do we handle the flood of false information? Well, first we remember what we've been taught. He says there, uh, verse five, do you not remember when I was still with you that I told you about these things? So we remember what we've been taught. He also emphasizes throughout the book, the remembering of the traditions that you've been taught, the things that you've been given by the church and by the leaders. 
Second, we trust in God's sovereign working. We trust that God is sovereignly working. Third, we love the truth over unrighteousness. We love the truth. And then fourth, we remember that God is actively involved. So to review the last two times we walked through this. First, we are not to be alarmed. There is a law. The lawless one is going to come and the rebellion is going to happen. These are specific instances that are going to happen. Specific people that are going to happen. Though there are many antichrists or many substitute Christs that come in the world today. There is also one specific that is going to come. and He's going to set himself up as God. He's going to take his place in the temple. He's going to try to make himself uh, ruler over all things. He's going to tell you, you don't need a law except for him. That's what he's going to do. And so <clears throat> these are this is all review of what we've done the last two things. So today, the last two sermons that we had on this passage. So today we want to look at how is God involved according to this text? How is God involved in this? Look specifically, and I just want to read it again to remind ourselves of where we are. Look specifically at verses 6 through 12. And you know what is restraining him now that is the lawless one. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with wicked deception or deception of unrighteousness for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false and in order that they may they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness so we want to ask today with this approaching lawlessness with lawlessness or rebellion kind of growing in the heart of man which it says there in verse 7 the mystery of lawlessness is already at work that rebellion that just kind of grows that we see in our society Oh, we see it, right? We see a rejection of truth in our society. So much do we see a rejection of truth that people are denying created biological truth. Just obvious truth. Things that are obvious. And then they're going, no, no, I'm not talking about biology. I'm talking about identity. And you're going, yeah, your identity is kind of tied to your biology. I'm, I hate to tell you. Um, but no, I identify as a cat. No, you don't. You can't be a cat. You're biologically and physically, it's impossible. I can be anything I want. My parents told me I can be whatever I want when I grow up. Right? This is ridiculous. But we're seeing this lawlessness. Hear this. This is what is thought the mystery of lawlessness that's growing in our world. It's already at work, it's already moving. So where is God in this? When we look at this, where, where can we take heart 
that God is in this. And it's so critical that we get this. It's so critical that you understand and that I understand that we understand together that when the world looks like it's falling apart, God is not far away. God is not far away. He hasn't taken his hands off. He hasn't gone, I'm done with you. He hasn't done that. He's actively involved in our world today. He's actively involved in this text. And the question is where? The question is where? So first, verse 6, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Then jump to the second half of verse 7. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So first and foremost, we need to recognize that God is restraining the lawless one. The lawless one who is to come, who's going to show up at some point, he's restraining him. He restrains and holds back the lawless one. He is only revealed when God permits. God is in control even of the adversary. We saw this in the book of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, you'll watch as the council of heaven is called before God and they come to him and they come and they come to stand and, and talk with him and look at him and... <coughs> The adversary is there, the, the accuser, I'm sorry, the accuser in Job, right? Satan means accuser, by the way. And so Hasatan, the accuser, is there, and he's amidst all the angels, and he's kind of, you can get the feeling like he's kind of irritated that he has to be there, and he doesn't say anything because he can't. Not because he doesn't want to, he can't. Understand the strength of God's presence. God doesn't have to say anything and the devil can't do or say or move. At the presence of God, he is silent. Until God looks at him and goes, Hey, where have you been? As if God didn't know. Where have you been? This is an echo back to Genesis chapter 3. When we see God ask Adam, Adam, where are you? God knows where Adam is. It's not outside of God. He knows. So he says, where have you been? So we have this quandary in the book of Job where we have to wonder, okay, what's going on here? And we recognize if we're, we're thoughtful Christians and we read the whole text and we read the whole, the whole book of Job and we, we kind of analyze what's going on, we see God is picking a fight on purpose to prove how great his love for his people and how wonderful it is to know him throughout the book of Job. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to watch. It's hard to read. And we see the adversary stand before God can't say a word until God allows. He can't do anything until God allows. He can't speak until God lets him. The, he is restrained. The lawless one, likewise, is restrained until God reveals him. He doesn't get to move until God lets him. Remember Isaiah 45, 7. If you don't have this verse memorized, you, you should work on it. I form light and create darkness, is the Lord, Lord speaking. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The word for calamity there is the basic Hebrew word ruah, evil. <coughs> and so hear it again with that word being read that way. I form light and I create darkness. Light and dark. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being or I make what is good and I cause or I create what is evil. Calamity is a good translation there. He's talking about natural disaster. He's talking about natural disaster. So it's a good translation. Calamity. But I want you to hear the raw 
text there because the poetry of Isaiah is trying to drum that into you. That evil is not somehow superseding the hand of the Lord. That it is not running rampant. He has not left it to run free and wild. It cannot overrun him. That's the point. It cannot overrun him. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, who does all these things. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, if you read it, you'll see over and over it says, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. There's an important truth to be had here. Man doesn't need help sinning. We do that really well all by ourselves. So if you ever want to say man does something really well, like we're good at something, sin. We are good at that. Yay! God restrains our sin. He holds it back. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter keeps saying, He gave them over, He gave them over, He gave them over. He never has to actively do something for us to sin. We do that really well by ourselves. What He actively has to do is is bring our hearts to Him, to to conform our hearts to His Word, to to move us. No, we all like sheep have gone astray. All of us have the venom of ass under our lips. We are by choice choosing unrighteousness. That's who we are. That's what we do until Jesus Christ changes our hearts. Until He changes who we are, we are wicked. Mankind will not choose what is good without the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when we pray for things like the abortion industry would end, we are praying specifically that the Lord would change the hearts of people. We are praying salvific prayers for people. Recognizing that they would change the hearts of men and women To put them in tune with what is right and good and holy and just. It is God who determines when. Look at verse 7. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. God who is restraining evil will restrain evil until he decides otherwise. Until he decides otherwise. He is going to restrain the lawless one. Jesus says it this way, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Only the Father knows when this is going to happen. Only the Father knows when Jesus is going to return. Jesus Himself, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, says, only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. So what we see now in the world is a restrained lawlessness. <clears throat> Isn't that wild? What we see, what we see now, the mystery of lawlessness, the rebellion, that's restrained. That's a restrained lawlessness. Doesn't that make you nervous? Makes me a little nervous. What if he moves his hand? Well, the rebellion, the lawless one. Are going to come, but they can't come without God's hand. So the first thing to recognize how God is involved in all this. One, he is restraining and it will happen in his time. Nobody else's. The adversary can't pick the time. The lawless one doesn't get to choose when he comes and when he doesn't come. The rebellion doesn't get to happen until God says it's allowed to happen. We can rest in that. I mean, there's a power in that, isn't there? 
that we can look at it and we can smile at the adversary. We can smile at the things of the future. Because what's if it happens, it happens because God allows it to happen. And we know Him. And so if we know Him and we know His character, just think about His character and who He is. You know He's good. You know He's righteous. You know He's holy. You know He's merciful. You know He's just. You know that everything about Him is, is wonderful. And so if He's restraining it and He decides it's going to happen at a particular time, then we can go, all right, I'm on board. I may be a little bit nervous about it because I'm human and I'm a little bit awkward, but I'm on board. This is beautiful. Second, we can see God answers the lawless one and the rebellion. Look at verse 8. When this comes, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So the lawless one gets revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So we see the lawless one is revealed, the rebellion happens, the lawless one is revealed, and then Jesus kills him by the breath of his mouth. This is the picture of fire being shot from the mouth to destroy and consume. Now, just this is not a cool martial arts fight that Hollywood could mimic. This is not an epic battle. This is the lawless one shows up, Jesus walks into the room, and he's done. This is not a fight. This guy loses immediately by the breath of his mouth. So let's consider that phrase, the breath of his mouth. Where else do you know in Scripture where breath is mentioned? There's one that ought to resonate in your bread, in your in your brain immediately, and that's 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verse 17, right? The, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is God's breath. And that and, second, and profitable for Reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God might be approved for every good work. So that that phrase, the breathed out by God, is attributed to the Scripture, to the Bible, and it's attributed to this text. And so it in that passage is the breath of God is what brings us life. It's what we would consider the animating force of of the soul. The other place that ought to immediately go off in your brain is Genesis when Jesus when God makes uh, man and breathes life into his nostrils. So the breath of God breathes the very animating life into man. It is the spirit of God infecting the man's soul or or in I don't know, filling the man's soul bringing him to life. This is this is what the breath does for us. The breath to the lawless to the lawless one, to those who are in rebellion, the breath of God is death. The same thing that brings us life brings death to those who reject Jesus. The same thing that brings us life destroys the lawless one. The breath of Jesus <coughs> kills the lawless one. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, we mentioned all scriptures God breathed. In John chapter 20, Jesus gathers his disciples and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the breath of God or the wind of God coming over the hills animates the souls of people, the breath of God. In Genesis 2, it is the breath that brings life to Adam. So, if you want to stand against lawlessness, 
and have supreme life and joy? You want to be able to stand against lawlessness, against rebellion? You want to be able to answer those people who are like, I identify as a... You want to be able to answer them? Saturate yourself in the Word of God. And you will kill every lawless argument. The breath of God will destroy every lawless argument. And what will be beautiful is it will bring life to the soul that is desperate for it. Because while we destroy every, every dark principality and every, every argument from Satan, we also offer life to people. And all those people who are caught up in lawlessness are people. They're people who need the breath of life in them. They're not enemies. They're not the enemy. Sin and death is the enemy. And it reigns in their hearts. And it reigns in them. And we have life and love and joy to give. Oh, it's beautiful. You want to stand against lawlessness. You want to make an impact in the world. Know the word. Breathe deep the word of God. Note the second thing here. So first, Jesus kills God answers the lawless one and the rebellion by killing it first, by killing the lawless one. And then verse two, bringing to nothing, bringing him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Lawlessness and rebellion is brought to nothing in Jesus. Romans chapter six talks about how this is done in us, right? It says that he comes and obliterates the old man. You believe in Christ Jesus. You are buried with him in baptism, raised in new life. And that, that obliterates the new the old man it wipes him out he's gone just by showing up jesus brings lawlessness to nothing by appearing this is light versus dark language right light versus dark language the lawless one shows up and everything's dark the rebellion comes and everything's dark and nobody can see anything jesus walks into the room and it's light and it's over there's not a battle. It's over. It's done. This is the power of Jesus Christ. So God is responding. When God comes, He responds to the rebellion. Jesus answers rebellion. God responds to rebellion in verses 9 through 12. Look at verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders, <coughs> with wickedness, with Wicked deception or deception of unrighteousness. That really ought to be, if you are reading in ESV, that really ought to be translated uh, deception of unrighteousness because wicked deception is a little bit redundant. Um, and it's a genitive there, so you don't care. It's, but the grammar should be translated uh, deception of unrighteousness. So it's unrighteousness is deception. It's the deception belonging to unrighteousness. That's... That's how it shouldn't. It's not a modifier, an adverbial modifier, anyway. But that's just in case you're looking at your Bible and wondering what wicked deception is. If there's good deception, no, there's not good deception. That's not the case. It's unrighteous. It's it's deception of unrighteousness. So we see here with all deception of unrighteousness for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may, they that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We got to do a little bit of philosophical and theological work here because of verse 11, don't we? Look at verse 11. If it doesn't give you some trip up, then good for you. Because it gives me some. God sends them a strong delusion. And remember the question we're answering. Where is God in this rebellion? Well, here He's giving them a strong delusion. He hands them a strong delusion in response to what has happened before. So let's. Di- I'm just going to leave that out there for a minute, just in case that made you very uncomfortable. Good, you're supposed to be. Now we're going to kind of pick this apart a little bit. First, the lawless one will be destroyed. God will justly deal with him, and he will justly deal with those who reject him. God is just. And that means that those who do not believe in Jesus are not saved. The punishment for sin is death, and they will suffer eternal death. It is a sin that is accomplished against an eternal God. Therefore, it has eternal ramifications. Therefore, the punishment of it has eternal consequences. This is a big deal. Note that this text says they willfully reject the truth. The people that are being spoken about in this text willfully rebel. Indeed, Romans chapter 3, we all willfully rebelled and needed Jesus to intervene. And we need the Spirit to intervene. Willful rebellion. The rebellion is what God is answering in verse 11. The coming, this rebe- so let's look at this rebellion first. Number, verse uh, 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Note first. This coming actively is by the activity of the adversary. It's emphasizing that for a reason. God is not guilty of evil. He's not culpable for evil, meaning you can't blame him for evil because he is not guilty of it. No, that happens perfectly fine without him doing it. This is by the activity of Satan. He is telling you, Paul is telling you, the active work here is done by the adversary. Done by the adversary. I would go further and say it's done by sin. At the same time that the adversary is working actively, we need to understand and remember that God is removing his restraining hand to allow it. So he is permitting this. This is a permissive will of God. He's permitting this to happen. And how does it happen? Look at that. With all signs and wonders. With all false signs and wonders. Now, Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. Jesus warns us about this again. If you haven't read Matthew 24, we read it a couple weeks ago when we were doing this the first time. But we see Matthew 24, verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, 
if possible, even the elect. These are legitimate signs. These are things that happen that are true, that actually happen, but they are unrighteous. They're unrighteous. So, if that troubles you, good. Matthew 24, Jesus says, False Christ will arise and perform signs and wonders so as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect themselves. They will try to lead astray, even the elect. So how do we discern false signs from God's signs, from Jesus' signs? And here's the thing. If you see it on YouTube, please reject it. If it's a miracle that you see on the internet, please reject it. Just take my word for it, reject it. If you see it in person, now we're talking about something. Or if you have a missionary come and he's going, this happens and this happens and this happens. Now we're talking about something that you need to investigate. If you have a friend who goes, I was here and I saw this thing happen. Now you have something to investigate. If you see it on YouTube, please turn that stuff off. Just make it easy on yourself and go, that's cool. And then turn it off. You can, oh, I don't care if you believe it happened or not. Just that don't base your theology on the internet. Please don't. It will save me a ton of time. So selfishly, as your pastor, please don't draw your, your theology from internet sources. Read good books. Talk to people. Love people well. Get some scholarly sources. If you feel the need to investigate something online, feel free. But remember, you're doing it for fun, not for biblical studies. So that having been said, let's, let's look at this. So how do we discern when we see something happen that actually happens? When we see a miraculous sign or a wonder, which evidently, by the way, just to warn you, evidently we're going to see these. As time goes on, as the world moves forward, this passage is telling us this is going to happen. This is going to happen. So Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 1 says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. So right there, chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, chapter, chapter 13, verse 1, says the sign comes to pass. And if he says, if this prophet says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to that prophet or the dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether your love, whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. These are signs and wonders in service of a lie. That's another way to think about this translation. <coughs> False signs and wonders. They're signs and wonders in service of a lie. So we see here in Deuteronomy, Old Testament, we are warned when you see signs and wonders, if the person who does the signs and wonders tells you the result of this is that you should follow another God. You should go to another God or do something contrary to your God, what your God has said. You shall not listen to him. Even though the sign comes true, even though it happens, you shall not listen to him. 
If someone tells you that there is some other Christ, some substitute Savior who is going to rescue our world, who's going to rescue society, and it's some other method of saving society other than the changing of the heart of men, other than the changing of the heart of men through surrender to Jesus Christ, if, if there is some other thing that they're proposing is going to rescue people, do not go after it. Even if they do signs and wonders and miracles, do not go after it. It's the same thing if a person preaches another gospel, even if an angel from heaven comes down and preaches another gospel to you other than the one that you have heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, that you would have life, that your sin would be defeated and you would have life. If anything comes, even if an angel from heaven comes and lands in front of you and tells you this, do not follow it. Why? Because this is a test to see if you really love the Lord. This is a test to see if you really love the Lord. And it's a big deal. Because evidently, those who don't love the Lord, according to this passage in 2 Thessalonians, they die. They get eternal punishment. And they get a strong delusion. They die. These signs and wonders come in a service to a lie. That's what it means when it says false signs and wonders. And with the deception of unrighteousness. So the deception and the lie they serve is written out here in this text. If you look at verse 12, it says, In order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You've got two things there. One, they did not believe the truth. That's the first one. Notice past tense. He's talking about what they did before they received the strong delusion. They did not believe the truth. And second, they took pleasure in unrighteousness. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. So they were finding their joy in unrighteousness. So what's the lie here? What's the lie? The lie is that truth is somehow less than pleasure of unrighteousness. That somehow embracing truth is not as good or as delightful or as pleasurable as unrighteousness. This is the lie that gets us every time. This is the lie that gets us every time. That somehow unrighteous pleasure is going to be greater than the truth. That somehow temporary pleasure is going to be greater than the truth itself. But if we will grasp this, that there is no greater pleasure or joy than knowing and living and loving in truth... Oh, the joy that awaits us. Oh, the joy that awaits us. These fleeting things that the devil and the adversary would convince you, this lawlessness that the devil would convince you is joy and truth and delight and it's unrighteous pleasure is greater than truth. That that, that convincing you, that fleeting, temporary, cheap truth, cheap pleasures that are found in unrighteous behavior or even apathetic, pointless behavior. Pointlessness is unrighteousness, by the way. Unrighteous, pointless behaviors, these purposeless things that drive us somehow, if he can convince you that that is more valuable than knowing truth and delighting in truth, then, then this is you. And this passage is hitting us. These 
non-believers who are given over to a strong delusion are those who have proclaimed that the pleasure of unrighteousness is greater than truth. The second thing is that they are testifying that there is another God that they want to worship. I get that from chapter 2, verse 4 there. If you go back to verse for the lawless one who opposes himself, exalts himself over every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes the seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. These, these rebellious ones, the rebellion is those who have chosen another Christ. Those who have chosen another God. They have chosen somebody else to represent them. And then third, the... The lie that is in service, these signs and wonders that this lie is in, that they're in service to, is that there is no law. They embrace the mystery of lawlessness in verse 7. There is no law. They begin to say there is no law, there is no truth, there is nothing absolute. Everything is relative. We are in the mystery of lawlessness right now. It's at work all around us. And there are multiple ways that it, and I could talk about it for hours. There are multiple ways that it reveals itself. So what is God's response to this? And this is where we can take heart. God responds by sending them a strong delusion. God answers the rebellion by ending the time for second chances for people. I want you to understand that there is a time for second chances. And sometimes that time is ended on earth. That's why we plead for people to repent now. They don't have time. Their heart might be hardened tomorrow. Their heart might be hardened today. A strong delusion is sent to these people who reject God. They reject God and God goes, All right, your time for second chances is done. I'm going to send you a strong delusion and you're going to go straight after it. You're going to run after it because that's what you've been doing. And you're going to run after it with all that you are. He doesn't, again, we don't need help sinning. We don't need help. We do that just fine on our own. So he sends this strong delusion and these people who have utterly rejected God run with all that they are at the strong delusion. And we see the time for second chances has ended. I used to use this phrase with my children because I wanted them to grasp it. I wanted them so badly to understand that there's not time. There's not time. You don't have time. The time for second chances has ended. And this is how it would happen in our, in our home, right? It would be, hey, go do this thing. You know, they were often, you know, this, like, you do that with this size, right? Not this size, this size, right? This size, you have rational conversations with. This size, it's no, you can't have cake. Why? Because I said you can't have cake. I'm not explaining to you that it's 8 o'clock at night and sugar's going to be bad for you and you're going to be hyper all night. You're not going to go to sleep. I'm not explaining that to you. You're four. You can't have cake. Right? That's the, that's the answer. But I used to tell this one, the time for second chances is done. And what would happen is it would be, do this thing. And then they'd say, okay. And they wouldn't do it. And I'd say, all right, you're in trouble. All right, punishment. Like, okay, we're putting you on your bed. You don't get to play anymore. You know, they'd, they'd look, they'd, 
Oh, well, what? But I was going to do it. Now, the time for second chances is done. Listen, that happens on this earth by our God now. The time for second chances is done at times. There are days when it's over. That's why evangelism is so important. That's why telling people about Christ is so critical because the time for second chances is coming to an end. And it's not just at death. It might happen now. It happened for the king of Heshbon, Sihon, the king of Heshbon in Deuteronomy. It happens for him overnight. The time for second chances to repent and, and let the people pass happens overnight. God hardens his heart. He's done. It happens for Pharaoh. The time for second chances is done. His heart gets hardened. He's done. This happens in the Bible over and over. The false prophets of Baal. The time for second chances is over. Now you got to do a competition with Elijah and they're about to lose. Right? That's, that's what happens. The time for second chances ends. Hear God's heart about this in Ezekiel though. Before we become self-righteous and prideful about it, Hear God's heart for it because it's painful. And I want you to understand God is not without compassion for the lost. He is not without compassion for the wicked. Hear this in Ezekiel chapter 18. And we're just going to read it. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 19 through 32. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the right, the righteousness of the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns from his ways, from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous person turns away from the righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of that which he of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them. He shall die. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just here now. O house of Israel is my way not just. Is it not that your ways are not just? When a righteous person turns away from righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And for the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from wickedness, he has committed and does what is just and right. He shall live and he shall save his life because he considered and turned away from the transgressions that he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is not your ways. Is it not your ways that are unjust? 
Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from your transgressions and sins, lest the iniquity bring you to ruin. Cast away all of your transgressions that you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That is the heart of our God towards the wicked. We cannot be prideful here. We cannot look at the wicked and go, you deserve it and I don't. No, you deserve it. And I do too. There is a merciful God. In fact, in this passage, he asks that question at the end. That you, He tells them, give yourself a new heart. I hope you caught that. Because later on in chapter 36, he's going to say, you can't. So I'm going to do it. So I'm going to do it. And he tells them about Jesus. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 33, we have the same kind of phrasing repeated. So chapter 18 to chapter 33. In chapter 33, he says in verses 10 through 20, And you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgression and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But the injustice that he has done, he shall die again. Though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turn from his sin and does what is right and just, if the wicked restores the pledge and gives back what he has taken by robbery and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. And he has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people will say, the way of the Lord is not just. When it is their own way that is not just, when the Lord, when the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by it. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. In Ezekiel, the heart of God is made revealed to us that He longs for people to repent and believe. He longs for the wicked to repent and believe. There is no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is a longing of God. And yet, the time for second chances will end. So repent now and believe now. And follow hard after Jesus now. Because the only way that this is answered is Ezekiel 36. I will take that heart of stone from you. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And I will make you a people. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will change your soul. I will change who you are. And Jesus Christ is the only way that that can happen. It's the only way that your account is brought to nothing before the Lord. And you are given a clean bill before Him. 
It's the only way to salvation. The Lord is gracious and merciful, but there comes a time when repentance is not offered. Those who are perishing in this text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 are those who did not welcome a love of truth. Did you see that? They did not, those who refused to love truth. That's, that's the phrase, did not welcome a love of truth. They take pleasure in unrighteousness in verse 12 and they embrace lies. But those who are saved, chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought also always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as his first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Those who are saved believe the truth that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And they are sanctified by the Spirit. God sends a delusion to these people. And it shouldn't surprise us because in Mark chapter 4, His disciples ask, why are you speaking in parables? And Jesus says, so that they won't understand. It's Mark chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. So that they won't understand, so that they won't get it. He quotes Isaiah, so that they won't get it. I speak in parables so that they won't get it because uh, to you has been given the kingdom. To you has been given the kingdom and it's not my time yet and they can't understand it until I say they can. That's basically what he gets at. That's his John Elkins remix. I'm sure there's some theological you want to, you know, it's, I get it. It's okay. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah asks how long and God says until this place is in ruins, then I'll save. Until this place is in ruins. The time for second chances ends, but there's great hope here. There's great hope in this passage. And remember the question we started with. Where is God in the rebellion? Well, here he is. One, God is not caught off guard. It's by his timing. None of this is catches God off guard. It's all by his timing. Second, God is not somehow taking sadistic pleasure in the death of the wicked. No, Ezekiel, you have to get the heart of God. There is no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not like God is cheering. No, he, he's burdened equally more so than you are for your neighbors. He's burdened for these people who commit atrocities and wickedness. Think about that for a minute. God is so gracious to the wicked that they are still alive. They are still alive. And as long as they are still alive, they can still hear, at least hear, and at least here, they may not be able to come after it. They may have had a strong delusion sent to them already, but they can at least hear the call. God is merciful. So first, God is not caught off guard. Second, God is, is merciful and he loves deeply. Third, man is guilty still. still. Man is guilty all on his own and God is just. And that's what we see here. Man is guilty all on his own and God is just. God is just and right to do what he does. And then four, we see in all that we see today, in everything we're seeing today, the mystery of lawlessness that's coming out all over our world, this mystery, God has not left. God is still active. He is still here 
restraining evil. He is still here working. And on the day that he removes his restraining hand, guess what happens? He shows up and ends it. The lawless one comes. The rebellion happens. And then Jesus lands. And it's done. It's over. So we have hope here. God has not left. He is not gone. Jesus has offered repentance and salvation to any who would believe. Only trust in him and have life.